Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be talking about a situation in El Salvador where a mining company really actually polluted a large large part of the water in that country. My guest today is expert on this particular topic. Mr. John Cavanaugh is the former director of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. He is the co-author of 12 books and numerous articles on a wide range of social and economic issues. Most recently, his book is The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. John Cavanaugh, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Yeah, great to be with you, and thank you for the public service you provide with this show, Bill. Uh, we're just trying to get information out to help people better understand issues, and this is a very important issue that it occurred in El Salvador, but it's happening worldwide, not in one particular area. But let's talk focus on El Salvador. When I think of El Salvador, I think of, well, the smallest country of the seven in Central America. It has... A, well, about 7 million people. It had a bloody civil war that ran from 79 to 1992, but it's a uh, developing country, obviously. Right. But how did you, well, first of all, let's just talk about why did you decide to write a book titled The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed? Sure, great question. Well, I, like you, Bill, have been involved in a lot of great battles for, for justice over the past 45 years. And in most cases, in the ones I've been involved in anyway, um, the people fighting the battle lose. So when I got involved with my Institute for Policy Studies, uh, also my wife, who's a professor at American University in this fight, and in the end, we had these remarkable victories. We thought we have to share this. We need a book to share this. If you can, as you say, poor, very poor country at the losing end of history, uh, El Salvador, if they can win not once, but twice, and we'll get into what they won, but the key thing is they became the first country in the world to ban mining to save their rivers, very fragile ecosystems there. If they can do it there, imagine what we can do in the richest country on earth. So that was the basic motivation. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the plot. What is, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, what is the plot of the book? Well, the book starts with a murder of an environmental defender, what we call the water defender, Marcelo Rivera. And uh, it then opens up into a bigger story. This guy had been fighting the mining companies who started coming in in the early 2000s when the price of gold and other minerals was, was going up. Um, he's brutally murdered. So the book dives into first, why is this guy murdered and who murders him? But he's part of a much bigger movement that is trying to stop gold mining. So 
that's the book gets into that whole question. Can these communities stop mining? And then there's a twist, which is that the mining companies sue El Salvador as it pauses mining. And the court case comes to this little known court in Washington, DC. Um, so it, and that pulls in thousands of groups around the world who think this is outrageous. So it follows that story as well. So it's in one sense, it's a story about El Salvador, but really it's a, it's a bigger story about the fight against corporations that have too much power anywhere in the world. How is it that uh, as this uh, natural, well, ecological disaster that was taking place in El Salvador wound up in a court in Washington, DC? Could not the courts of El Salvador deal with it or are they on the side of the mining companies or do no, they a, not have a court system that's sufficient to handle it? You know, it's a great question. It goes back to the 1980s when Ronald Reagan and Margaret, Margaret Thatcher were elected. And a lot of the rules of, of the world economy were rewritten away from the public good to much more favor corporate interests, partly because corporations advise the government's writing the rules. But in this case, the key culprit was in the early 90s, many of your viewers will remember this, there was a big fight over a proposal for a North American free trade agreement. That agreement was basically a set of rules which gave corporations more rights. And a key one in that agreement and in almost all subsequent free trade agreements is the right of corporations to sue, uh, the right of corporations to sue governments if they think governments are impeding their future profits. By the way, governments can't sue corporations in this court. So it's in a tribunal, it's based in the World Bank in Washington, DC. Most people have never heard of it. And it's, it's plain wrong. It's, it's a rigged rule and, and one that people have been fighting for some time to, to change. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened as far as how did they win? We hear these battles all the time, especially with indigenous peoples in Ecuador, in the United States, in other parts of the world, and how they're battling mining companies and companies that want to extract their natural resources or destroy their timber or whatever. What, what was the compelling argument that won it for the people of El Salvador as opposed to the mining companies? You know, I think- yeah, the mining, well, there were a couple of big ones in there. No, the key argument, I think, that, that won it for them, you know, it's interesting, conservatives are very good at framing fights that make it easier for them to win. They call the estate tax the death tax. <laughs> Who's going to be for the death tax? <laughs> we seldom do that. In this case, the Salvadorans were brilliant, which is the mining companies come in, they say, we're going to bring progress and jobs, accept us. They say in El Salvador, look, we are a country that's dry. We don't have that many rivers. We have one major river system that goes through the country that provides water for half of the people. So what's more important, water or gold? In this case, they said, water is life. Their slogan was water is life. It's a little bit like the, the opposite of the death tax. Who's going to be against water's life? It turns out there are very few people who can fight against that. So rather than framing it in a negative way, we're against mining companies, which potentially sounds like you're against progress. They framed it in a positive way. And that was one of the keys to victory. And in so doing, of course, they were joining fights for, for the right to water, clean and affordable water all over the world. So it, it also linked them to a, to a global fight. 
What was the final resolution? How did they work this out? Did the mining companies agree to make sure that the waters weren't polluted, that uh, there were safety standards in place, that uh, the people who live downstream would not be affected? How did, what was the bottom line on that? Well, the bottom line, it's interesting. I, I found one of the surprises in this story is that the mining companies were arrogant. They simply said, we are bringing progress, we're bringing revenues. If you oppose us, you're, you're ignorant, you're ignorant farmers, you don't understand. And they didn't really offer much in terms of compromise. When the people on the ground in Northern El Salvador where the mines were gonna be, they went to, across the, the river to Honduras to see what big mining operations looked like. And what they saw, they didn't realize this, but basically industrial mining uses cyanide to separate the gold from the rock. If that gets out into the water systems, it's, it's, it's game over. So they, they figured that out. And so they, they started to, to fight back. They educated people very strongly in those communities. They won over the communities. In that country, as in many countries in Latin America, a key to public opinion is the Catholic Church. They, there's a fascinating piece of the book where they go and meet with this very conservative archbishop who's seen as pro-corporations. He's blowing them off. He's not paying attention to them. Then they mention the cyanide fact that you, that you, use, you gotta use cyanide. And it turns out this guy had gotten a master's in chemistry. He woke up and he rallied the church against it. So in the end, they, they took it to the national legislature and the national legislature was won over to the argument of water is life. And they voted, um, they voted to, to end mining, to, to ban all mining. So uh, the mining companies did not, they talked a good talk about green mining, sustainable mining, but at the core of it, they, they didn't challenge the way they produce gold, which is in an incredibly dangerous way. And that's, that's a quandary that we're in right now. You want progress as far as creation of jobs, but we don't want to destroy our environment in the process. And we look at fracking, which is not the most ecologically sound way to get petroleum out of the ground, as we all know, or gas or anything else. We look at the production of lithium, which we need for electric cars and that type of thing. So how can we do that safely and still not leave some type of ecologically disastrous footprint that's yep. going to wreak havoc on future generations? No, it's a great question. And yes, we will still need mining in the future. What more and more experts around the world have, have are, are arguing now, though, is that there are certain parts of the world where there shouldn't be mining. You shouldn't mine in a country that has almost no water like El Salvador. You shouldn't mine in indigenous areas. You shouldn't mine where there's typhoons or earthquakes because you'll disrupt the whole process and pollute rivers and land. So if you look at that, what, what some are calling no-go zones, you would stop mining in about half of the world's mines. Now, how can we do that and still maintain our lifestyles well? Right now, we only recycle about 30% of the metals that we use in the world. If you push that up to 80 to 90%, one, you create a lot of great jobs. Those could be very good, well-paid, dignified jobs. And you could stop mining half of, of the minerals in the world. What, the one other thing though, Bill, you raised that's really intriguing. Right now we're in this country in the midst of a huge debate about how to shift our economy from fossil fuels to, to a green 
future. And you're right. And so most people just assume, okay, that's, that's pretty easy. <laughs> well, I don't know if anybody thinks it's easy, but they're not looking at one tricky piece to this, which is in that shift. And in particular, in the shift to electric cars, electric vehicles, which needs to be massive. Those vehicles use batteries. Those batteries depend on goods that are mined. And the key one is lithium. And lithium, again, is tricky. It's hard to mine it in a safe way. And so we will need a major debate about how to do that, where lithium should not be mined. Uh, mining also requires a huge amount of water to, to you sh shoot water down into the ground in order to push up the brine that includes lithium. Again, that's very difficult in certain parts of the world. So, so truly responsible mining, where you take into account the impact on communities is gonna be a central part of the big debate in this country and around the world about the green transition. And as we're talking about this, I was thinking about some of the, well, just we'll focus on the US just for a moment. We've had a brisk debate over the Keystone XL pipeline, which is an attempt to transport this really peanut buttery sludge. It's not really oil per se, but you can convert it into oil through a pipeline over a very delicate aquifer in the, uh, in the plain states through, through Nebraska, Kansas, and I think there are about 12, 14 states. And if they were, to, if that thing were, ever, well, first off, it may not ever happen, but if it did ever break, it could destroy the water for the people in that area. And water is going, a lot of people have said that's going to be the oil of the 21st century because water is so precious and it, it is a finite source. And you look, we look at, well, just Flint, Michigan, how the people in Flint were poisoned by corrupt officials, incompetent officials, and that type of thing. So did, did that come into the debate? Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. yeah, no, absolutely. Great, great way you just framed that, Bill. I think for most people in this country, most people have never really thought much about water. With a flick of the wrist, they turn on the faucet and they get unlimited water. Now, poorer people think about that because you have to pay for it. And so there are, about 14 million people in this country who find it hard to afford water. But water, water, I think, was taken for granted by many until this winter, when we had the great freezes in Texas, Mississippi. Water lines, old water lines, busted all over the South. People were without water. And in Mississippi, they, many, some are still without water now rates are going up. And so I think people are, are now understanding what you said. First of all, water, bottled water is more expensive now in some areas than, than oil. That switch has already happened. And so water is a central issue now. Who can, we believe that, I think many people do, that the access to clean and affordable water should be a human right. But it turns out in order to do that, you have to rethink a lot of things. And the pipeline you started that question with is, is one of them. That pipeline can't be built. We can do without food for a while. We can't survive without water. We have to have it. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website, at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a community access television or a PBS station, 
or perhaps you're involved with an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, you'd like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very uh, potentially, uh, could have been a potentially dangerous situation in El Salvador with the pollution of the waterways in that area. My guest is, has written a very interesting book on it. Mr. John Cavanaugh is a former director of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. He's the co-author of 12 books and numerous articles on a wide range of social and economic issues, most recently, The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. John, we're talking about this. When I was, when I was going through the globalconnectionstelevision.com website, it dawned on me that in the past, I've interviewed several people who have been involved at the United Nations in the indigenous, it's, it's a conference really each year, usually in March, somewhere along in there, and indigenous peoples from around the world are invited to the UN to talk about their issues. And they focus a lot on waterways and trying to negotiate with companies. And in most cases, or many cases, I won't say most, the indigenous peoples lose and the corporations win. Do we have a blueprint? Do you see that maybe there are more entities coming together? I know the UN has worked on this problem for years. You've got UN agencies working to help preserve the Amazon, to pre preserve pristine natural resources, to work with people, to raise living standards, to raise the safety and health standards of the workers. But do we see other folks coming to join in this struggle and to really to try to create a better world. And we're not that we're trying to shut down industry or mining or anything like that, but to do it in an ecologically sustainable self, well, unselfish way, let's put it like that. Sure, no, we do. First of all, the UN General Assembly, listening to people all around the world back in 2012, passed a resolution on the right to water. For, for all people. Fascinating basis for future action. Overall, I think it's, it's interesting the way you put that, Bill, because as we said earlier in the program, part of what we're fighting against is a set of, of global rules, economic rules that favor corporations that allow them to go to these fairly secretive and biased tribunals uh, like the one at the World Bank. The UN is ultimately at the global level, the countervailing power. And the key is institutionalizing these, these rights like um, the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I say that and at the same point, I wanna emphasize that one of the most creative things going on in the world today to preserve water and the right to water is happening at the local level, but it's globally connected. There's something called the Blue Planet Project they are helping cities around the world from Berlin has done this, Los Angeles has done this, to pass resolutions to become blue communities. This means they won't sell bottled water in municipal buildings. It means they won't privatize their municipal water systems to private companies that wanna take them over and push up rates. So a lot of what can be done on this issue can be done at the local level and the regional level, but it always succeeds better when there's global coordination. And that's what's going on with, with uh, these blue communities. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that we need to do. One other issue that comes to mind 
is when you see the folks who are coming up out of Central America, most of them from Guatemala, Honduras, and from El Salvador, that these people are on the move. Uh, some people say they're just uh, coming for various reasons. Many of them are, well, I'm sure they have many reasons, but many of them are coming because they're climate change migrants. Right. They are on the move because they can't grow coffee anymore. The soil's depleted, whatever the case might be. The climate crisis has hit them and it hit them several years ago, maybe even before it hit parts of our country. Did you encounter that or the, some of these folks when you yeah, were- Yeah, absolutely. No, you know, we spent in doing this book, we spent a great deal of time in Northern El Salvador. And one thing that came across that won't surprise any viewer here is most people, if given the opportunity, would prefer to stay home. These people are farmers. They love what they do. They love their culture. And if they can keep their rivers both clean and abundant, they'll stay there. But as you pointed out, I mean, anybody who's followed Central America has seen this. They had five years of terrible climate change induced drought. So you'd drive around that country, you'd see corn fields, you know, wilting in the sun, then followed by two devastating hurricanes. So right now at the border of the United States and Mexico are a large number of people from Honduras, Guatemala, some from El Salvador who, who've been devastated by that. And it's, it's one more massive argument for action on climate change. But just one other key point here, they're coming from those three countries, much less from Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and others. We'll take, nobody comes from Costa Rica. Why? It is because the U.S. has played a terrible role in those three key countries sending the migrants of disrupting democracy in those countries. And each of those three Central American countries, the U.S. has helped overthrow governments in the last 70 years, which has led to a destruction of their democracies, much more authoritarian governments. And so people are fleeing both climate change, as you say, but also bad governments. They certainly are, and it's going to get worse. That's the thing we have to realize. And it's not just going to happen overseas. It's going to happen. It's already happening here. We look at the forest fires, fires out west. The desert southwest part of the country has been in a drought for decades right. now. And right. you can't keep adding people to Phoenix, Arizona with the water supply dwindling. It's just not going to happen. Well, John, the last couple of minutes we have left, let me plug one more book that you wrote, The Alternatives to Economic Globalization. Do you have one or two suggestions briefly from that book that we yeah, can yeah. think you know about what? as we move on with this discussion? Sure, Here, here's I think a key one from that. That book came out of conversations among a couple dozen people from around the world who came together to think of a world that didn't have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the World Trade Organization and these, these unequal institutions, but instead had different ones. A key thing that we came to in that book is a lot of the reasons why corporations do what they do. These mining companies in Central America, the oil and gas companies that are doing the fracking is because of the way they're chartered. They're chartered in a language that says those corporations must maximize profits, minimize costs, and that is their mandate to their shareholders and they are beholden to shareholders. It's in, in different states around the United States, I live in one, Maryland, you can incorporate a corporation not as a for-profit corporation under those rules, 
but as a for benefit corporation where your mandate, your charter says you must maximize benefits for all stakeholders, for the community, for workers, uh, as well as for shareholders and for consumers. If you change that logic, then corporations are no longer forced to do what is in the greatest short-term financial interests, but can start thinking more long-term. Once they can do that, everything changes. So that's, that's a gem from that book that, that, that is truer today than it was 20 years ago when we wrote that and will be key to creating the economic institutions which can serve our communities as opposed to the bottom line of the very few. And there are more and more, I think, economists and experts in this field who are joining you, joining your chorus saying that corporations and companies need to be concerned about shareholders, but they should not be the number one priority. And the bottom line at times will have to be a little bit lighter in order to provide environmentally safe ways to do business and to be fair with people and to pay your fair share of taxes, which that's a whole other issue that we can get into, but we won't today, I guess. But John Cavanaugh, it's a fascinating book, The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. But John, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Great to be with you, Bill, and thanks again for what you do. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.